So welcome to the Westpac podcast, uh, where we uh, talk about the key issues that were, were raised in the Westpac market outlook that's recently been released, uh, as well as any other issues that have come up uh, since then. And today we have a number of great speakers. So my name is Bill Evans, I'm the Chief Economist. But we have Andrew Hanlon, who'll be talking about business confidence and business investment. Matt Hassan, who'll be talking about housing and the consumer. Uh, Lockie Halloway, who'll be giving us his take on the JobKeeper program. And Elliot Clark, who'll be looking at the big picture issue around the, the uh, US economy and markets. So let me start by making a few comments about the Reserve Bank and some of our views on the economic growth environment. Uh, the Reserve Bank, as expected, held, the, held their policy setting steady at the April board meeting. And of course, we're all very interested to see how they would, uh, would address the big development since the previous meeting, which was a big fall in the unemployment rate from 6.4 to 5.8. Uh, whilst they recognised that was welcome, they still indicated that they thought it was too high. And of course, they haven't changed their settings indicating that they still believe that um, it, uh, the rates will remain on hold uh, until 2024 at the earliest before there'd be a rate hike. Um, they strengthened their view on quantitative easing uh, and we of course have already indicated that we expect there will be another round of quantitative easing beginning in the first week in September of 100 billion. But after that, we think that the uh, RBA will taper that back to 50 billion when they make the announcement on the next set of quantitative easing that we expect in the February board meeting. They also confirmed their commitment to yield curve control, which is to buy three-year bonds at the cash rate, indicating their confidence that the cash rate will remain on hold for three years. And we do, do believe they'll maintain that policy all through this year. So they'll be switching their purchase program from April to November bonds we think that'll probably be announced around the August board meeting. You know, the other big information I found around the, uh, the talking from the Reserve Bank this month was the growing view that they're lowering their target for the unemployment rate. Generally, we used to think of the unemployment rate between four and a half and five percent. The governors often talked about between maybe four and four and a half. But the deputy governor talked in terms of he would like to see it in the high threes or low fours. So I think that privately the Reserve Bank is now really targeting an unemployment rate in the high threes. So even though they'll be lowering their profile for the unemployment rate as a result of the strength we're seeing in the labour market at the moment, they're also going to be lowering their target level. And bear in mind that it's also going to be important that you're at that unemployment rate for some time before you'll be generating the wage pressures that are needed to generate confidence of a sustainable uh, level of inflation in that around about that two and a half percent range. In the outlook, we confirmed our view that economic growth will reach four and a half percent this year. And indeed, with 1.6 percent growth target for the first quarter of this year, we're expecting that actual GDP growth the level of GDP in the first quarter will be 0.4% above the level of GDP in the final quarter of 2019. So we're saying that the economy will be back to that pre-COVID level 
uh, during this quarter, which is quite a surprising result uh, given where we were thinking about the economic environment this time last year. And of course, of that four and a half percentage points of growth this year, we're expecting three percentage points to be contributed by the consumer. So we're very pleased to see uh, the result that consumer sentiment for April has lifted by 6.2% to the highest level since August 2010. That was at a time when we had the uh, disappointing news about AstraZeneca. We had, we've, we've been inundated with information about the slow rollout of the vaccine. And of course, it's been the time when JobKeeper has been terminated. So I've thought myself that those factors would have been enough to have led to a modest fall in consumer sentiment this month. And yet it surged 6.2% and it is now near at the highest level for over 11 years. When we delved into the, into the results, and Matt Hassan will talk a bit more about that with regard to the implications for the housing market, what struck me also was the fact that of the four or five components of the index, one of them uh, fell, whereas the others, of course, were very strong. And that was the whether now is a good time to buy major household items. So what that's telling us is that there's probably been quite a substantial bring forward effect in terms of buying household durables. And indeed, purchases of household durables are now up more than 11% over the last year. But what's been down has been uh, uh, discretionary services. They're down around 27%. And I think the survey today is telling us that this strong consumer that we're going to see over the course of this year, you'll also see quite a pivoting between purchasing household items, durables that did so well last year, towards services that struggled so much last year. So that big pivoting in the spending practices of households is going to be a very important factor to watch as we go through this year. But there's a lot more information with regard to a strong business survey yesterday. And of course, as businesses start to recognise a strong consumer, they're likely to lift their investment, particularly in equipment. So let me hand over to Andrew Hanlon and I'll ask Andrew um, uh, the first question which I'd like to ask him is that private business surveys, beginning with the Australian Chamber, Westpac survey, have been reporting that business conditions during March quarter are at historic highs. Have you got some comments on that, Andrew? Yeah, hi, uh, hi, Bill, and hello, everyone. Yes, yeah, so certainly we saw with the Australian Chamber Westpac Business Survey uh, conditions jumped. The activity uh, index here jumped to a historically high 60.4, and we're seeing really a consistent theme across the surveys. Um, the NAB survey for the month of March uh, reported business conditions at plus 25. That's a record high. It's up eight points in the month, and it's up from zero uh, in the September quarter. So, so this lift is telling you this uh, lift in activity, which is quite strong. The other aspect was capacity utilisation has strengthened to 82.3. Now, that, that's uh, above the levels that we saw at the end of 2019 ahead of COVID. 
and it's approaching the elevated levels that we saw in mid-2018. So, so that's a, a positive sign for the outlook for investment and for employment. What we saw was really a universally strong survey, so business condition strength broadly based across industries and across states, uh, strength across new orders, employment up seven points to plus 16 across capex, and you're also seeing inventory rebuilding. So just to pause, what's driving all this? I think you could sort of describe it in two ways. One is a catch-up effect post the COVID disruption in 2020, which impacted the consumer the most. And this dynamic still has further to play out, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, the state's hardest hit by COVID. And the second effect is really around the strong tailwind from policy stimulus. You see that certainly in home building led by the smaller states. And that's in response to the home builder program record low rates, and we're also seeing a switching in demand patterns, a desire to move to standalone dwellings, and that's associated with working from home. So what you're now seeing is that, as well as the strong consumer, you've seen the construction sector, which was a laggard, is now accelerating, to spillover effect to uh, other sectors, and as well as housing that's driving that lift in construction, you certainly had a, a strong round of government infrastructure programs announced in the uh, latest round of state budgets. And we discussed all those themes and dynamics in our market outlook on the Australian Economy page. Thanks, Andrew. Um, in, my, in my presentation, I uh, talked about uh, the importance of inflation for the outlook for interest rates. Uh, are these surveys pointing to any cost and price pressures associated with this acceleration in activity? Yeah, it's certainly a good question. We are seeing um, some movement on that front, so input costs, prices and labour costs. So if we just take the NAB survey, for example, the purchase costs, they're reporting for uh, March a 1.8% quarterly rate of change in purchase costs. Um, and some, some of the detail from other surveys have talked about high freight charges. So I think you're running into some bottlenecks or some question marks about uh, stock availability. And I think one of the dynamics here is that it's easy to switch on demand. It's kicking back in more quickly than supply in this sort of post-COVID environment. And we are seeing some pass through to retail prices in this survey, only a partial one at this stage. So we had the 1.8% quarterly change in purchase costs, whereas retail's at 1%. So certainly, you know, it does suggest you'll start to see some lift in the consumer prices, but not as quickly as input costs. And then as you shift across to the labour costs or the labour market, uh, there the rate of increase is quite uh, noticeable, a 1.9% quarterly rate of change. But what I, I discern from these surveys, and it's not just the West, uh, the the, uh, the NAV survey, but most private business surveys, is that the relationship between the labour costs that they report and the official reporting of wage price index is really quite mixed in the post-GFC environment. So I, I think you really need to look at other indicators to get confirmation that wage pressures are starting to build. So I think it's on the radar, but I, I think you need to see more evidence of labour costs before you, you'll be uh, confident that that's actually starting to emerge. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Andrew. Matt Hassan, um as I indicated in the introduction, we've got a pretty upbeat forecast for consumer spending. What's your thinking with regard to that? Yes, uh, yeah, we do have quite a bullish view. Um, you know, we're looking for spending growth of 5.8% this year. That's uh, quite a bit above the RBA's 4% forecast for 2021. Um, that said, some of that difference probably comes down to quite small differences around uh, key factors like the timing of uh, post-COVID reopening. Um, if you recall, you know, we've seen a 
pretty extreme volatility around expenditure. Uh, consumption uh, plunged 12% when we went into national lockdown a year ago. Uh, it bounced back 12% over the second half, but the key point here is that this bounce back uh, was pretty uneven. Um, it mainly reflected the end of COVID restrictions, um, but uh, outside of it, in the, the large states, New South Wales, in particular Victoria, that bounce back was only really a partial rebound. So Victoria's spending was still down 7.2% uh, compared to its pre-COVID level. Uh, so we've still got some outsized gains to come from that post-COVID normalisation. And depending on which quarter you put it into, uh, you know, that uh, affects the annual growth rate quite a lot. Um, but just bear in mind also, you know, that, that very weak last year means that it was, even with a 5.8% gain over this calendar year, the two years combined are seeing uh, annualised growth of 1.4%. So, you know, we've still we've still quite got quite a hit uh, underlying that. I think, you know, the, the other things to bear in mind, though, aside from that that normalisation effect, um, we have a couple of pretty big positives. You know, the first is the, the very large reserve that households are carrying over from last year. Uh, the forced savings during lockdown uh, and, and the cash infusions we saw from government policy last year. Uh, meant households are coming into 2021 flush with cash. Uh, they saved about $160 billion last year uh, during uh, lockdown. Um, and they've kept much of this cash on hand. We've seen bank deposits rise over $120 billion over that period. Uh, and you know that reserve is there and able to support spending, but also perhaps to, to lift it. Um, the second factor that you've already mentioned is confidence. Um, you know, that 11-year uh, high in consumer sentiment uh, is really pretty important for maintaining momentum this year, particularly as we see some of those uh, uh, supports or JobKeeper in particular uh, rolling off. If, if consumers were instead uh, worried, particularly if they're worried about job loss, then they might have just kept that reserve on hand and, and even continued saving at the really elevated levels that we saw last year. Our view is that the savings rate uh, will come back and, and land around uh, 5%, uh, partly as households uh, lean on their reserves to, to fund spending, uh, but uh, also as, as that underlying confidence sort of sees a return to relatively uh, you know, modest savings rates uh, compared to, you know, comparable to the pre-COVID level. So there's a couple of other big positives in the mix. 5.8% um, sounds bullish, but I think it's a pretty reasonable estimate for this year. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt, did you see anything interesting around the housing market in, in the April Consumer Sentiment Survey? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's some very clear themes uh, emerging uh, out of the Consumer Sentiment Survey around housing. We have two housing-specific questions uh, that we run on the survey. One's asking about whether now is a good time to buy a dwelling, and that, that captures the owner-occupier perspective and, and tends to be more sensitive to shifts in affordability, both from interest rates and from prices. Uh, and we have a second question, which is about house price expectation, which is really going to give us a better handle on a key driver for investors. Uh, the message in April is that we're seeing a widening divergence between the two. Around time to buy, that index is now down uh, nearly 19% from its November high, uh, a very clear shift and a signal that the surge in prices is starting to buy, significantly dampen buyer sentiment uh, amongst owner-occupiers. But against that, you know, the price expectation series is just going from strength to strength. We had a new cycle high in April, um, up over 160, very strong uh, bullish reading. Uh, the combination is pretty clearly pointing to a transition for the market. Um, Owner-occupier demand is likely to cool, particularly in those really uh, affordability-sensitive segments such as first-time buyers. Um, and uh, on the other side of things, you know, investor activity should continue 
picking up. And we're still coming from a very low starting point for investor activity, uh, but uh, that price expectation, coupled with the, stro- the strong price gains to date, uh, means we're still we're going to continue building on that. Um, how that leaves the mix is, is a bit unclear. The, the transition could see mo- price momentum slow a little bit. Um, but I think the more important point is that as we move, as we swing towards uh, a market that's more driven by investors as they take over the running, uh, then the RBA and RBA and APRA are likely to become much warier about the potential for overheating and the potential risks uh, to financial stability down the line. And that starts to bring uh, other policy measures, macroprudential policy, uh, into frame. Now, it's still early days in this transition. I think we're getting a very clear signal from sentiment. Uh, and we don't think that those issues will really come to an head for, ahead for the regulators until uh, well into next year. But I think we're getting a, a pretty clear thematic coming through the sentiment survey already. Thanks, Matt. Um, Lachlan and Halloway, Lachlan and Justin Smirk did some very good work on the impact of the end of JobKeeper on the labour market. Would you like to give us some uh, flavour of your results, Lachlan? Yeah, thank you, Bill. So um, I'll briefly talk about how JobKeeper is going to impact the labour market. But to answer that question, I'm first going to need to establish how many people were relying on the subsidy when the scheme finished on the 28th of March. So we knew that about 960,000 people were on the subsidy in January. And any firm that received the subsidy in January was eligible for the entire quarter. So we'd expect the end March number to look pretty similar to 960,000. So we've actually penciled in 1 million recipients to allow for some late submissions as firms return from the holiday period. Now that 1 million people is almost 8% of all employed persons in Australia. So it's a significant proportion of the labour force uh, and it shows how reliant we were on the JobKeeper program before it concluded. Now, in terms of the industry distribution, the sectors that were the hardest hit by the pandemic are going to make up the bulk of those 1 million recipients. So to give you an example, we'd expect about 120,000 people in accommodation were on JobKeeper and a further 90,000 were in the transport industry. Now, around 65,000 people in arts and recreation were likely on JobKeeper, which is almost a third of total employees in that industry. So now that we've established that a million people were relying on the subsidy at the end of March, we need to determine how many of those people will be at risk of losing their jobs now that the scheme is finished. So to do this, we used a variety of resources from the ABS, including their business surveys and hours worked data, to create a job loss rate for each industry. Now at the more severe end, industries like accommodation, admin and support, and arts and recreation could see as many as one in four of those on JobKeeper lose their jobs. However, the more insulated industries like mining and utilities and financial services should see job losses of less than 5%. So when we apply this approach across all the industries in the labour force, we find that roughly 1 in 10 people who are on the subsidy at the end of March will be at risk of losing their jobs. Now, considering our estimate of 1 million recipients, that means roughly 100,000 people will be at risk. Thanks very much, Lachlan. Um, Elliot Clark. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit about the U.S. Uh, optimism abounds for the U.S. in the past month. And it's seen the Biden administration propose another $4 trillion or 20% of GDP in spending. Does this mean their current rapid momentum can be sustained beyond 2022? And what are the implications for the uh, Federal Reserve? Thanks, Bill. It certainly has been a very, very positive month for the U.S. Uh, in terms of data and also just kind of market sentiment that has gone with that. 
Uh, just to give you, I guess, a, a flavour of what's been going on in terms of the data flow, we've had key activity indicators such as the ISM manufacturing and non-manufacturing indexes, respectively, at multi-decade and, and, and all-time highs. Uh, and March alone, as that one month, saw the creation of almost one million jobs. Uh, unsurprisingly, sentiment amongst households and businesses is very favourable currently. Uh, these factors have seen us pull forward and amplify our growth profile for the US this month. Uh, we now look for year average growth of around 6% in 2021 and 4% in 2022. That compares to about 5 and a quarter and 4.5% for 21 and 22%, 20, 21 and 22 respectively, a month ago. Now, these are certainly strong outcomes which see full employment in the labour market regained by around the end of 2022. So that, that's effectively an unemployment rate of about 4%. Um, however, you'll notice that in our profile, there's a clear step down in momentum from 2021 to 2022. Uh, and in our view, that will continue into 2023 with growth around about 2% in that year. Uh, now, the reason this is the case is that the policymakers continue to foster a consumer spending-led recovery uh, rather than one that's been driven by investment and income, which is much more the case in a country like China. Um, as the government's outside support for the US economy um, sort of reduces its support there for household incomes, uh, then you'll see the labour market uh, come through and, and actually yeah, it will continue to mature, uh, but you won't have as much in, impulse there. So the fact that we'll be having depleting uh, positive effects from fiscal policy at the same time as you get less support from the labour market, that will inevitably see spending growth uh, quickly revert back towards trend uh, towards the end of the forecast period. And that's really what's driving that, that uh, progressive deceleration in growth we see over the forecast period. Now, you mentioned there that uh, President Biden has followed on from his uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus package uh, of a month or two ago uh, with another proposal for $4 trillion worth of spending over the next decade, uh, really targeting infrastructure and investment. We don't really believe that this is likely to be enough to actually kind of uh, stop the, the, the sort of uh, the, the events that I was talking about before in terms of the deceleration and growth and coming to be. The reason is, or there are two uh, reasons why this is the case. The first is that um, all this $4 trillion of spending, that's going to be put over eight years. So the impact on any given year is actually a lot smaller than that headline number. Uh, secondly, there's actually going to be an offset uh, to, to fund the package, which is an increase, a permanent increase in the corporate tax rate. And that will actually then reduce the return from private investment for businesses, which should then sort of, I guess, uh, mitigate the momentum we're seeing in, in that part of the economy and effectively offset some of the benefit that you get from greater government spending. Uh, and so all, all in all, uh, you know, that, that therefore leads to, I guess, a more muted or, or, or softer sort of growth pulse going forward uh, and very much unlike what we're seeing currently with, with the, the surge in, in, in spending and, and stimulus going through the economy at the moment. Now, of course, the additional sort of, I guess, factor we have to consider here and, and why we're kind of quite cautious on actually starting to price this into our profile is that we have to just wait and see how sort of uh, these, these packages can potentially pass through Congress. Uh, there's a, a disparate array of views and priorities uh, across Congress on, on these measures, um, and that will likely, you know, at least hold it up for a time, uh, if not mean that it's, it's very difficult to actually pass these initiatives. Uh, for the FOMC, uh, I guess the consequence of all these factors is that we're, we're likely to see them continue to actually be very accommodated with policy. Uh, they've already noted that in terms of inflation this year, they expect that to be transitory, um, and they're really wanting to see not only full employment regain, so an employment rate of 4%, but actually to push forward and find the maximum level of employment they can have that doesn't actually lead to well above um, average or well above target inflation over time. Uh, and so for them, you know, running the economy hot is not a concern. Uh, and that's why we continue to expect uh, that they will look to uh, hold fire in terms of asset purchases uh, and continue to um, put off the taper, likely until the second half of 2022. 
uh, and that we probably won't see the first Fed funds rate hike until the early 2024 um, at the earliest. Thanks, Elliot. Um, but what about the US dollar? Policy in the economy is strong supports for the dollar. How's it been performing and where, where is it likely to trade through 21 and 22? Yeah, it's been a really interesting month for the US dollar. So uh, yeah, we have, uh, I guess, at its peak, it was up about 2.5% uh, versus uh, the level we saw at the time of the March market outlook. Uh, but what we've seen since then is actually it has reversed course. Uh, and now currently, uh, as we speak in this podcast, it's actually sitting a little bit below that level of, uh, at the time of the March market outlook. Uh, so I think in this, what we're seeing is that market uh, participants are starting to recognise that we are likely very near, if not at, I guess, the, the, the peak of the white-hot momentum that we're seeing in the US economy. Uh, and they're now starting to factor in the kind of what comes next. Um, so that is a, a deceleration in terms of the, the immediate growth pulse to the US as stimulus has its effect and the current program winds down. Um, and equally, at the same time, if we look to Europe and the UK um, and then to the broader economy, the global economy, we're seeing, uh, I guess, a pickup in the optimism there uh, from very, very depressed levels currently uh, with a belief that they will sort of get their, their concerns. So particularly for Europe, uh, the vaccine uh, deployment has been well behind. Uh, you know, get that back on track, get their recoveries back on track, uh, which will then provide support for their currencies versus the US dollar. Uh, so we really still continue to believe that we'll see this uh, US dollar downtrend, which has been in place over the last year, uh, continue on uh, all the way through the, you know, the end of 2022. Uh, over that period, we're looking for about a 5% depreciation on a DXY basis. Uh, and it's also worth mentioning, uh, as I guess, a point of conclusion, that uh, for currencies like the Australian dollar and others across Asia, we expect uh, materially larger gains against the US dollar than on that DXY basis. So something around about 10% for the Australian dollar and also uh, a currency like China's renminbi um, is to be expected as we see a continuation of the global recovery uh, and really that sort of growth momentum we're seeing broadly uh, across the world uh, really yeah, start to, I guess, come front and centre in, in, um, in investors' minds. Thanks, Elliot. Yes, I was going to mention the fact that we still, that we've retained our forecasts that the US, the Aussie dollar will reach 82 cents against the US dollar by the end of this year, and a lot of those dynamics that Elliot was talking about are key to that view. Just let me finally send a, 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 um, a, an anecdote about what happened. Um, when we reached this level of consumer sentiment confidence last time in August 2010, uh, that had coincided with an increase in interest rates from the GFC lows by the Reserve Bank of 1.5%. And that was enough to really tip things over. So while we were celebrating in August 2010 at this very, very high level of confidence, within a year it had fallen by 25%. A lot of that was under the weight of those rate increases. Reserve Bank will be aware of that. They'll be aware that uh, their interest rate policy is so important to maintaining momentum in this economy. And that's why we retain our confidence about a very balanced approach from the Reserve Bank. And as you heard from, um, from Elliot, the same approach coming from the US Federal Reserve. So thanks very much, everybody, for listening. Uh, once again, an amazing array of issues, uh, and I have to say how proud I am of the team in the way they've so clearly addressed those really important issues today. So thank you very much and goodbye.